0: Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at Bible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Alright, the scripture reading this morning is from... Revelations chapter 3 verse 22 through 4 verse 1 He who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this Please be seated thank you Joseph you will notice that the reading of the text was rather tight. We are moving between two chapters, chapters three and four in Revelation. It is often thought that Revelation chapter four has in it the rapturing of the church prior to the tribulation, and I wish to address that idea this morning. This is a topical or thematic study. I will be in the book of Revelation for points seven through ten. And We will consider this idea. Uh, I would rather be looking at a specific paragraph, uh, but there is an idea between chapters 3 and 4. I have been saying that the church is in tribulation. I have been saying that there is a singular coming, and I do not believe that that singular coming is divided into two parts a pre trib rapture, and then the seven year tribulation, and then the second coming, and then following the millennial kingdom. Some of that language or vocabulary might be new to you, but I trust as we work through Revelation, it'll become clearer as to what this looks like. Many of you are aware that my daughter and her family live in New Zealand. They are visiting with us for three weeks, and we are trying to spend as much time together as possible. My grandson Boaz is five years old, and we are putting together a five foot puzzle. The puzzle is filled with animals, and one of the animals is this keratin scaled looking armadillo and I thought well what in the world is this thing so I looked it up on the oracle and it said it was a pangolin. The pangolin is found only in Asia and sub-Sahara Africa. Pangolins have large protective keratin scales it's similar in material to the fingernail and toenail on your body and it covers their entire skin and they are the only known mammals with this feature. They live in hollow trees or burrows, depending on the species. Pangolins are nocturnal and their diet consists mainly of ants and termites, which they capture using their long tongues. Now, identifying it and calling it by its proper name is helpful. It's not an armadillo, it's not an eater. it is a pangolin. I might wish to call it an eater. I might wish to call it an armadillo, but it is a pangolin. By calling it by its name isn't to shame it or judge it. It simply is what it is. By identifying it as a pangolin, we are also saying what it isn't. It isn't an aardvark or apple. It isn't a bat or baffoon. It is a pangolin. Thus, names and labels can be helpful for identifying what something is. Now, how is that helpful in our current study of Revelation? In our study of Revelation, we have sought to do biblical exegesis and biblical theology, and I've been trying to educate us as to categories and vocabulary and to make sure that if we use titles or names that we know what the title or name means. We have attempted to steer clear of labels within systematic theology. So when we talk about a pre-trib, rapture, or a seven-year tribulation, those are categories that we typically assign to a text based on our system of theology. The same is true with a label like amillennialism or inaugurated eschatology. All those are labels or names or words we assign to specific things based on our systematic theology. But sometimes the labeling of something is unavoidable. And today might be one of those studies where labels can prove helpful. And my intent in labeling isn't for the purpose of dividing It's unfortunate because regardless as to where you place the coming of Jesus Christ, whether you think it is, and I'm speaking to people who might know the vocabulary, whether you think it is pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib, we all believe that when Jesus comes, you're going up. The only problem would be the rupture of the church. If somehow you believed only the obedient were going up and the rest of us would be left behind. That's a problem. But if you believe in a literal, actual, physical return of Jesus Christ, then regardless as to where you place it, we all have that precious, blessed hope. Jesus Christ is coming again, and we believe that coming is imminent. I do not, however, believe there is a rapture of the church that takes believers out of tribulation. I believe we are in tribulation, and there will be an intensifying of this tribulation at the coming of Jesus who controls this intensification and we will look at all that when we get to chapters 5 and 6 Jesus Christ is the one who will end all of this tribulation for his church and he will put an end to all evil when he pours out his wrath upon them at the great white throne judgment and the lake of fire one of the passages used by those who believe the church is removed from a seven-year period of tribulation is revelation chapter 4 verse 1 And that is why we read the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 verse 1 because the language of chapter 4 verse 1 has been used by those who believe in a pre-trib rapture that the church is now gone from what follows in chapters 4 and following from earth or tribulation. And because they use Revelation 4 verse 1 as a verse or passage supporting their idea, I thought we would pause for just a minute And explain, I I use minute loosely, but just to explain why I believe we are in tribulation and why I believe that the coming of Jesus Christ will end that tribulation for us. The challenge that we do have in our study of Revelation 4.1 is whether or not the church is removed from this tribulation or if the church is in and remains in tribulation until Jesus comes. And our desire is to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I have offered the idea that Revelation gives us a picture of the past, the present, and the future. And it does that through repeating cycles of seven. And that's part of this apocalyptic literature, that the numbers are symbolic. Rather than being sequential, they happen simultaneously until the climactic moment of our Lord's second coming to set all things straight or to set all things right. The way that I would currently divide the book of Revelation is rather simplistic. There's not a whole lot of bells and whistles. It's mostly like Breyer's vanilla ice cream. Four ingredients is cream, milk, sugar, vanilla. This isn't Moose Tracks. I love Moose Tracks, but this is Breyer's vanilla ice cream. In the first 14 chapters, you have the present age being described. And all of us are somewhat familiar with these cycles of seven, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and then the seven bowls. I believe the seven bowls comprise a single event, the coming of Jesus. But if I were to map out the book of Revelation, chapters 1 through 14 is the present age. It's where we are right now as a church. And then the age to come, which is still yet future. It could happen today, but once it happens 15 through 22 will take place. I would reference verses like 1 Corinthians 15. The whole passage, the whole chapter speaks to this idea. Before venturing further, let me explain the idea of tribulation. Because I believe that the church, and I believe that tribulation period began when Jesus Christ ascended to the Father's right hand. It's where he received authority. He makes the statement in Matthew 28... All authority has been given to me. He has the authority. He is worthy to unroll the scroll. So I believe at the ascension of Jesus, this is the scenario that's taking place. He begins to break the seals in chapter 6. I believe thus we are in tribulation. But let me explain the idea of tribulation. The tribulation that we speak of in Revelation is not the tribulation of a difficult marriage or parenting, a difficult child, or putting up with a difficult boss. Or struggling against a difficult body. All those are difficult things. All of this is some form of suffering as a consequence of sin's demerit. But this is not the tribulation we speak of in our study. The tribulation we speak of in the book of Revelation is the consequence of believing in Jesus. Because of your faith in Christ, you suffer persecution. Persecution. This tribulation is an active persecution by others because of one's faith in Christ. We pray every Sunday for the persecuted church. They are persecuted not because they have a difficult marriage or parenting a difficult child or putting up with a difficult boss or live inside of a difficult body. They are persecuted and in tribulation because of their faith in Christ. This tribulation is spoken of throughout the New Testament and it's graphically described for us in the book of Revelation. It is this tribulation we are addressing and it is this tribulation I believe believers are experiencing and will experience until Jesus comes. So for all of us, we are believing in the imminent return of our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in a literal, actual, physical, visible coming of Jesus. And when he comes, he will set all things straight. And we will be delivered from this tribulation and we will always be spared from the wrath of God, which is indeed to come. So as we look at this, these 10 reasons, the first three are rather quick. I am aware of the time when I speak as a whole. So I will seek to do this in a timely manner. I would encourage you, if you have any interest, to pick up the fuller manuscript in the foyer. It has a lot more material than I am able to cover on a Sunday. But I wish to begin our study with three quick observations as to why I do not split the coming of Jesus into two parts. A pre-trib rapture and a post-trib coming separated by seven literal years called the tribulation. I've been laying that out for us over the last several months. First of all, reason number one is simply this. Nowhere in the Old Testament, when you read your Bible from Genesis to Malachi, nowhere in the Old Testament is a rapture of the church preceding a seven-year tribulation taught. So it's not based on preceding information. A pre-trib rapture and post-trib coming separated by a seven-literal-year period called the tribulation has to be read back into the Old Testament text. The second reason is this. Because of that, no one in the first century church would have read the idea of a rapture of the church preceding a seven-year tribulation in any of the New Testament letters. So when the Thessalonians, and I'll reference the Thessalonians later on in our study, but when the Thessalonians received the 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, they were not reading rapture language inside of chapter 4. They were not placing a seven-year tribulation between chapters 4 and 5. And why? Because their presupposition, their theological presupposition, coming out of the Old Testament, all of their theological training, was not teaching some kind of pre-trib rapture for the church preceding a seven-year your period of tribulation. The third reason is this. Not one single early church creed or council or confession deals with end times or eschatology. Now, it does reference the coming of Jesus and the judging and the resurrection of people and the judging of people. But it's very, very generic. It's Briar's ice cream. So every creed, confession, every council, when it talked of eschatology was very plain, was very simple. It There were not a whole lot of bells and whistles. So when I begin looking at this idea of a pre-trib rapture for the church prior to a literal seven-year tribulation, followed by a second coming or post-trib coming, followed by a thousand-year literal millennium, well, that's not in the Old Testament, not that kind of language. It's not read by the New Testament Church into the New Testament letters, nor was it in the church's creeds, councils, or confessions. So I think to myself, well, then why do we do this? Why do we somehow construct something much more elaborate so instead of Briar's ice cream, we're dealing with moose tracks? A lot of things in the ingredients. But I do believe there are several reasons as to why, and I've just offered you the first initial reasons, and if you are... Thinking through these things, consider those initial three thoughts. So the fourth. Now we're moving into the book of Revelation specifically as to why I do not uh, take the church out of tribulation, but see it as part of tribulation. The fourth reason is this, the overarching structure of the book of Revelation. And I I find always uh, this totally fascinating when you think on these things. But when you think of the overarching structure of the book of Revelation... You have intentional symbolism of apocalyptic literature and in all fairness or openness Not everyone reads the book of revelation as apocalyptic literature Some read it literally So when it says 144,000 are saved from the 12 tribes of israel, they believe that there is 144,000 not 143,999 There's 144,000 not 144,001 It's 144,000 from each of the 12 tribes listed in chapter 7 of Revelation. I personally, because of reading it as apocalyptic literature, I personally see the 144,000 as speaking of a multitude that no one can number from the Jewish nation. And I believe that's taking place right now. God is saving Jews. But because of the nature of the structure inside of Revelation, the intentional symbolism of apocalyptic literature, the numbers in Revelation are symbolic. So every number that you read in Revelation is a symbolic number. They're literal numbers, but they speak of something more. Not only that, but we've also commented on this contrasting parallels in the book of Revelation. If you read the book of Revelation, you begin to pick up an intentional structure because of apocalyptic literature. One of them is the symbolism of the numbers and and the the objects. Jesus is a lamb, the devil is a serpent, the two witnesses are the olive branches and lampstands. You have that kind of symbolic language. In addition, you have this picture of contrasts running from chapter 1 through chapter 22, and you can pick that up in the foyer, and I would have that ever before you. But when you read chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5, chapters 2 and 3 describe the people of God on earth. Chapters 4 and 5 then describe the people of God in heaven. Those are two contrasting positions speaking of the one people of God. A third reason underneath this fourth point is simply the repeating phrase, I will show, or I was in the spirit. If you look at the structure of Revelation, you'll see reoccurring statements. Those reoccurring statements are intentional by the apostle John. He's wanting us to see that there are these various visions that are taking place. He's giving us information not only concerning the present age in which we live, but the age that is to come. And you have this repeating phrase of, I will show and I was in the Spirit, and it happens in chapter 1, chapter 4, chapter 17, chapter 21, and chapter 22. But the pattern in Revelation, and all this stuff is is contested, But in Revelation, the pattern doesn't show chronology, but content. It isn't about sequence, but substance. And thus you have this repeating pattern throughout the book of Revelation. And then the fourth thing concerning structure is the use of after these things. After these things. These are things that must take place. Six times that phrase occurs in Revelation. And the idea... The repeating of the pattern or the phrase is that there's a change in the panorama, not chronology. He's giving us bigger pictures, more information. And in the visions received, there is a change of picture and scene, not of progression or sequence. So we see in Revelation that there's this intentional structure. And the structure within Revelation does not speak to a coming with two parts or a separate seven year period of tribulation. It speaks for us that we as a church are in tribulation. John is giving us reasons as to why we should be encouraged and comforted. And one of the dominant reasons why is that Jesus is coming again. And when Jesus comes, every problem that you and I have will be forever abolished. When Jesus comes, that is the finalized victory over sin and death. We see that. The fifth reason as to why I believe in a singular tribulation with a singular coming is that the separation between tribulation and wrath in the book of Revelation. Now, there are those who combine these two ideas. They believe that to be saved from the wrath to come is to be saved from tribulation. However, I believe we are in tribulation. And I believe there is a distinction made Inside the book of Revelation and elsewhere that speaks to this idea. I emphatically believe that the church, the believer, is exempt from God's wrath, and I do believe there will be an intensifying of evil and thus tribulation at the coming of Jesus. But I do not believe that the church is exempt from tribulation, and I do not believe there is coming an isolated seven year period of tribulation. And I don't believe that for the following three reasons. And I, I think this is, this is neat how John does this, as well as the New Testament. The first is this. In the book of Revelation, and if you've been reading Revelation and you've sort of given yourself to simply reading the book, in the book of Revelation, the word wrath, you have two words being used, tribulation and wrath. Those two words are distinct words. And in the book of Revelation, the word wrath only occurs in conjunction with the second coming of Jesus. So if you were to read, and I know you have, the book of Revelation, you would see that in chapter 6, chapter 11, chapter 14, 16, 19, and 20, and I do believe chapter 16 through 20 is showing us a singular moment, a singular event. But you look at all of those references, every one of those refers to the second coming of Jesus. I don't believe one refers to the, a rapture preceding a seven. Year period, and one follows. I believe they're all speaking to the same idea. And what's really neat is if you were to take the word wrath and you traced it in Revelation, every time the word wrath occurs, it's coupled to the second coming. And for me, the second coming is at the end of the tribulation, the second coming is when God comes back. He will raise the quick and the dead and all of humanity shall stand before God and the unbeliever shall face the full wrath of God both at the great white throne and then in the lake of fire. So the only time in Revelation that wrath occurs is when it is coupled to the second coming. I mean, that, that is pretty cool in, in a crazy way. And I would say that's something you have to consider otherwise the word tribulation occurs apart from that but wrath only occurs in revelation when it's coupled to the second coming of Jesus the second thing and we're leaving a little bit the book of revelation we're looking at first and second Thessalonians because we've studied that as a church but nowhere in first and second Thessalonians are tribulation and wrath combined both words are used but they're not combined when you look at this distinction, it's quite interesting. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, when writing to the Thessalonian church that is in tribulation, Acts chapter 16, it says that no one be moved by these tribulations, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. You are destined, you are appointed to tribulation. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer, we were to experience tribulation just as it has come to pass. And just as you know... And for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and tribulation, we have been comforted about you through your faith. So the Apostle Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, echoes the same idea that Pastor John does in the book of Revelation. The church is in tribulation. They have been appointed to this. But then, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, Paul writes this, For God has not destined us. He has not appointed us for wrath. We have been, as a church, been appointed, destined for tribulation. But we have not been appointed for wrath. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the third thing you see concerning tribulation and wrath is found in the way First and Second Thessalonians are structured. In chapter 4 of First Thessalonians, verses 13 through 18, much is made of Jesus coming and this idea of being caught up. And I'll address that specifically in a moment. But many would say that chapter 4 is speaking to the rapture of the church, which is pre-trib, and then chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, it's dealing with the second coming. What they have to do is place a seven-year tribulation between chapters 4 and 5, and yet the New Testament reader would have never done that. That's what I'm arguing. He would have never placed a tribulation between chapters 4 and 5. The reason why 4 and 5 differ is because of the question being answered and the audience being addressed. But 4 and 5 speak to a singular event, the coming, that has two different audiences. The same is true in Second Thessalonians chapter 1. And we've worked through all these books already, and we have tried to show this idea. And then the third thing you see concerning tribulation and wrath is that when you read the New Testament, it describes and Tells us that we are going to be in tribulation and I, I don't want to look at all the passages But John chapter 16 verse 33 just prior to the high priestly prayer of Jesus in chapter 14 in the upper room Jesus says to his disciples These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace in the world you have tribulation Acts chapter 14 verse 22 strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith saying through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of god and second timothy chapter 3 verse 12 indeed all who desire to live godly in christ jesus will be persecuted so the church is in tribulation we are not exempt from tribulation we are destined or appointed to tribulation but we will not experience the wrath of god the wrath of god is reserved specifically for those who do not accept the lord jesus christ as their savior from sin and death. Now, the sixth reason. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 2, it speaks of John being caught up, and John is granted a vision. That same idea of being caught up appears in chapter 1, verse 10, chapter 4, verse 2, chapter 17, verse 3, and chapter 21, verse 10. What's happening? Well, I personally believe that John's experience in Revelation 4, 2 is the same experience that the Apostle Paul had in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, where the Apostle Paul, verses 1 through 4, describes an individual, speaking of himself, whether in or out of the body, he does not know, but such a man was caught up to the third heaven, to the heaven heaven where God is. And Paul writes then, And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. I think what Paul saw is what John saw. Both of them saw this vision. Paul did not communicate the content of that vision, whereas John does. And what John sees is chapters 4, not 5. He sees this courtroom scene, where thousands of thousands of angelic beings and the redeemed of God are worshiping God the Father and God the Son. So you have these paralleling ideas of chapter 4. Well, what exactly is taking place? Same thing that took place with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It also took place with Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel. They all had these celestial visions of God. And that's what we have John experiencing. So it's, it's not the church being taken away. It's John receiving a vision. Reason 7. In First Thessalonians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul uses the word harpazo in verse 17. And the use of this Greek word harpazo is important to us in this way. In the Latin, when the Latin translation came out with uh, St. Jerome during the 3rd and 4th century, he takes the word harpazo and he translates it with the Latin word rapio the Latin word rapio reflects this harpazo, and it's the word to be caught up. But the word rapio is where we get our English word rapture. So we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. The Greek word harpazo means to be caught up, to be taken, with the Latin word rapio or rapture. So when we speak of rapture, it simply means that that person or people are caught up. They're plucked, they're taken. What we have done with that particular word is that we've laid on it a pile of presuppositions. I'll show you this in a moment. But we've taken the word harpazo, which is the Greek word in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 17. It's not the word in chapter 4 verse 1 of Revelation. But we've taken the word harpazo. It's been now translated into Latin with the word rapio, We take it into English as rapture, correct? And then we impose on the word systematic theology. So if I were to say to you, uh, do you believe in the rapture? The presupposition of the question assumes that you are thinking it's a pre-trib gathering that precedes a seven-year tribulation. The word rapture, though, is is really neutral. It simply means to be caught up. John uses the word rapture Harpazo four times in his gospel John chapter 6 verse 15 John chapter 10 Where it speaks of being plucked Being pulled It's also used once in Revelation chapter 12 verse 5 Where the child Is caught up into unto God And to his throne And John assures his audience That no one and nothing can take the believing Out of the father's hands his use in Revelation speaks of our Lord Jesus' ascension to heaven after his resurrection. So John, in three references, uses the word harpazo, but he does not use it in the way that Paul does in 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul's usage, this is what's interesting as well, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, harpazo, for this up, catching up together, is the same word that he uses in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2, for knowing someone who has caught up, harpazo. But we don't reference Second Corinthians 12 as a rapture. We simply see that Paul was caught up. So we have to be careful that we do not impose on the word a meaning that is foreign to it. But what is the big deal anyways? I mean, Paul says in First Thessalonians chapter 4 that when Jesus comes, he's going to take away, he's going to pluck up, he's going to catch his people. The idea that is being conveyed in 1 Thessalonians 4 is simply this. When our Lord Jesus returns for his people, when Jesus comes, there is no force created that will be able to stop him from from accomplishing his purpose. When Jesus comes, what matters is what you think of him. And if you believe in Jesus, if you have recognized that you can't, but only God can and Jesus did, when he comes... He's going to finish what he began. He's going to catch you away. Nothing and no one can stop that from happening. When God acts, the dead are raised to life. Thus, we do indeed believe in an actual, literal, visible, physical, and eminent coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The eighth reason as to why I believe that we are in tribulation, based on the book of Revelation and a single coming is that the promise of being kept by God in the book of revelation. In Revelation chapter 3 verse 10 it reads but you have kept the word of my perseverance speaking to the church i also will keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. We are in tribulation. What's amazing about Revelation 3:10 is how it ties to the high priestly prayer Of Jesus in John 17 in verses 12 and 15. Jesus prays for them to be kept Not to be removed Keeping does not mean removal but guarded God guards us during this period of tribulation. How do I know that from the book of Revelation two things? Right now you as a believer have on your forehead heart and hand the mark of God the seal of God you have the Holy Spirit And the Spirit of God is keeping you during this tribulation. He is guarding you against the evil one. In addition, throughout Revelation, you have this reoccurring reference to a book of life that was written before the foundation of the world. John's intent in making the statement is to assure you, as the people of God, that you are secure during this time of tribulation. And during this time of tribulation, you are being kept by God. God is keeping you. He is guarding you. And you and I do not need to fear tribulation. Regardless of the serpent's rage, we are kept in it. God preserves what is his. The ninth reason why is the call to patient endurance in the book of Revelation. Throughout the book of Revelation, you have this reoccurring word, this idea of patient endurance. It occurs seven times. It's the same word that does occur in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24. But the one who endures to the end, Will be saved, we are called to endure because we are in tribulation, but we do endure because we are being kept by God, because God preserves, we persevere. John also calls the church to hold fast in verses twenty five and twenty six of revelation two again it is it is not the tribulation of a difficult marriage or parenting a difficult child or putting up with a difficult boss or struggling against a difficult, failing body. Every motivational preacher, teacher, coach, counselor, and seminar tells us how to change our lives and not give up. But this isn't what the New Testament is calling us to. The New Testament tells us to hold fast in a hostile, anti-faith, anti-Jesus world. Don't stop believing. And the final reason as to why I believe we are in tribulation is the singularity of the story and the one people of God in the book of Revelation. Since Revelation is the consummation of the Old Testament story, remember that the two are tied together, the Old and New Testament. We've also noted how the book of Revelation has more echoes or references to the Old Testament than any other New Testament book. Revelation is showing us the end of the story, and it isn't giving us two separate distinct stories, but one single story. And at the center of that story is Jesus. When we look at the book of Revelation, we have to realize that there is one people of God being referenced throughout the book. We should see the theme of Revelation as a continuation and culmination of that story that began in Genesis. As noted earlier, chapters 2 and 3 see the people of God on earth. Chapters 4 and 5 sees these same people in heaven, and both groups are the people of God. And the only difference is, those on earth are alive, and those in heaven have died, and entered into the millennial, or heaven kingdom. To think that God deals exclusively with an ethnic group, and then in Christ combines these ethnic groups, and then once more separates these ethnic groups, and these ethnic distinctions carry forward, after the work of reconciliation, in my mind is strained. We are the one people of God, We are made up of different cultures and different colors, but all of us need the same gospel. And together we form the one people of God. And his promises are for all peoples. He deals with his people and his non-people. And both groups together need the gospel. Now we've looked at 10 reasons why, and we are going to be moving into chapters 4 and 5. But why does this matter to us? You know, why should we even care? If, if it doesn't really matter that if Jesus comes and we all go up, what does it matter if we are pre-mid, pre-wrath, post? Well, the reason why I think it does matter is because we have a responsibility to the Word of God. We have a responsibility to the Word of God. We have in our hands the inspired, inerrant, infallible book. We need to read it well, and we need to read it right. And sure, there are some things that we cannot be certain about, but we need to try to be certain. We need to try and understand what indeed is being said. So we have a stewardship, a responsibility to the Word of God. God has entrusted to us this Word, and we as a church are stewards of that Word. And then secondly, we do have a responsibility one to another. We have a responsibility to one another. And how we engage one another over this topic and in light of this topic is important. Whether or not we agree or if we disagree, we should still see us ourselves as the one people of God. We should be able to get along even though we differ. That's easy to say when I'm behind the pulpit. But we should. I have rich conversations with people that do not agree with me. But we all agree on the coming of Jesus. And I benefit, with hopefully with an open mind, to benefit from the discussion. So we have a responsibility. And how we engage others over these areas is indeed important. So I've offered you ten reasons as to why I believe that we are in tribulation and the next event on the calendar is the coming of Jesus. What are the four takeaways from this? Well, first, expect, because we are in tribulation, expect persecution for your faith in christ don't think simply because you are here that persecution isn't taking place or will not come our way don't think well before all that happens jesus is going to come and get me now jesus might indeed come and get you but don't think for one minute that you will be exempt from tribulation expect persecution for your faith in jesus Stop thinking you will be saved from it and start opening your eyes to our brothers and sisters who are hated, persecuted, and killed for their faith in Christ Jesus. The serpent, and listen to me because I don't want us to become cynical, but the serpent hates the woman's offspring. And we have to come to grips with all of this. There is at work right now in this present age a malignant evil that seeks the destruction of, of Christ and his church. Secondly, be encouraged. Not only should you expect persecution, but be encouraged, because nothing can remove you from the hand of God. Pastor John elsewhere, in his gospel, chapter 10, verses 25 through 29, makes this statement. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them. And that's the Greek word, by the way, harpazo, rapture. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You and I are kept by God. So even though we should be expecting persecution, we can be encouraged because God will keep us. Thirdly, he's coming quickly. Revelation assures us of this. The return of Jesus Christ could and can happen today. Right now, that return is imminent. And I long for the return of Jesus Christ. And then finally, hold fast to Christ. No matter what else might be going on in your world, endure. Every day is a good day, to serve Jesus by serving one another. Your mission field are those within your circle of responsibility, whether that is your home, your family, or your workplace. Stay faithful to Christ by actively serving the gospel to those in your circle of responsibility. So as we look at the book of Revelation, we are assured that we are in tribulation, however you might define that, but expect persecution. Know that God is keeping you. Know that he is coming quickly, and hold fast to Christ. Please stand with me as we pray, and then we'll be coming forward to receive the elements. We will partake of them together. But let us close this study in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have had to consider this larger topic. And the intent is to walk us then into chapters 4 and 5, and to perhaps bring clarity to a topic that is difficult. Father, may we be encouraged knowing that you are keeping us. We continue to pray for our brothers and sisters who are experiencing tribulation, suffering, persecution. Father, we know that your word assures us that the return of Christ is imminent. And thus, in this moment, may we hold fast to him. As we celebrate the elements this morning, may we remember the gospel that has truly made all this possible for us, that we can have this assurance that we have been sealed by the Spirit, that our names are written in the book of life from the very foundation of the world. Thank you, Father, for this time, for this church. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.